I'm in Johannesburg, South Africa. The Fordsburg neighborhood to be exact. It's the height of summer, late morning, and you can tell it's going to be a hot day. This is an absolutely bustling neighborhood. There's cars everywhere, people everywhere, people walking back to the shops. It's a remarkable place, the beating heart of the city's Indian and Pakistani community. There are African women selling fruit. There's men in kameez walking all over the place. It's just a, a real fusion of culture. But I'm not here for the culture. I'm here to attempt to buy a very specific type of cigarettes called cheapies. So we're going this way? Yeah, I think so. And by buying these cigarettes, I'll be contributing to a massive money laundering operation. We'll get the cigarettes around here as well, right? Yeah. Easy. I'm here with my colleague and cameraman, Manny Panaritos. You sell cigarettes? Yeah, where can I get cigarettes? Cheapies have been around forever, but demand exploded during the pandemic. Tobacco sales were prohibited as part of the government's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. The cigarette ban was in 2020, and it only lasted a few months, but it permanently changed the market. Some experts, however, say that the illicit cigarette trade has put down its roots in the South African landscape and will dominate in the foreseeable future. Hey, man. Oh, cool. Here we go. Cigarettes. How are you, boss? It doesn't take long to find a shop that sells them. Wellington Gold. You do? Can I see? Can I get back? The shopkeeper then reaches under the counter and grabs a pack. That's it. That's the one. Cool. Remington Gold. Yeah. How much? The cost is 20 rand, just over one US dollar. So the Palm Halls are 32, the Stuyvesant's 44. Do you have any others this cheap? No. This is it? Okay. Remington Gold, 20 rand. Thank you. And it looks like I got ripped off because the place down the street was selling Remington Golds for 17 rand. Now that's significant because 17 rand is actually less than the minimum tax that you would pay on these kind of cigarettes. So it is, when they say cheapy, it is impossibly cheap. So how are they able to keep the price so low? Well, that's simple. These cigarettes are illegal, so there are no added taxes and fees driving up cost. Dude, these guys aren't going to earn much charging 20 rand a packet. Yeah, but if you multiply it thousands of times over, it starts to pile up pretty fast, and none of it can be declared. We're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars in sales every year. And because these cigarettes are illegal, all that money needs to be laundered to make it look legitimate. And here's the fine point of it. These cheapies are manufactured by a company called Gold Leaf Tobacco. Gold Leaf Tobacco is owned by a guy named Simon Rudland, who we have identified as a kingpin of the gold mafia. This is Al Jazeera Investigates. I'm Kevin Hurton. 
Welcome to Gold Mafia, Episode 3, Blowing Smoke. Over the next two episodes, we take you inside one of Africa's largest money laundering operations. We will show you how dirty money from a pack of illegal cigarettes goes on a Byzantine, multi-country journey and winds up squeaky clean, washed and folded in a foreign bank account. It's a process made possible by two unique factors. One, the hands-off regulatory environment of the Emirate of Dubai. And two, the seemingly limitless potential of gold as an international commodity to disguise illicit activity. But first, let's get back to South Africa and those super cheap cigarettes. One company began to dominate the market. The recent findings also show how Gold Leaf Tobacco Corporation now represents 73% of the markets for illegal cigarettes. For this part of the story, I want to bring back my iUnit colleague, Alexander James. He's one of the lead investigators on this series. So, Alexander, I know Simon Rudland is making a fortune from his cheap cigarette business. What can you tell me about his background? The Rudlands made their name in logistics, transport, sends trucks up and down the length of Africa, tobacco, farming, agriculture, and they're people who uh, I guess you could refer to as part of this class of white oligarchs. Rudland's enormous wealth has not only made him famous in Africa, but it's made him some serious enemies too. He was thrust into the news a couple of years ago. He's a key figure in this kind of turf war for South Africa's smokers. There's this attempted assassination caught on camera. The assassination attempt is pretty wild. It's from 2019 and the video is on YouTube. You see the footage caught on a CCTV camera of his Porsche pulling into this meeting of other key players in the tobacco industry and the the back windows are are shot out by a drive-by shooter. We got a detailed breakdown of the shooting from Rudland's friend, Ewan McMillan. And the guy reverses and follows the car. I'm saying, wow, Simon, that guy is one bullet, man. We heard from McMillan in episode one. He's a convicted gold smuggler from Zimbabwe, where Rudland is also from. McMillan spoke to our undercover reporters about a conversation he had with Rudland after the assassination attempt. Now he just got the bullet in his back. So I said, you got shot, did you feel it? You got three. One went through the neck here and came out here, one in the top here, and one in his back. He's still got one in his back. Rudland survived the attack, and in the years following the pandemic, saw his business grow and grow. It got so big, in fact, that in the autumn of 2022, South African authorities froze Goldleaf's assets, and both sides are now battling it out in court. Now he's huge. Now he's he's massive. He is one mother, my friend. You have no idea how big he is. So we know the first stop for my 20 Rand note. It went to Goldleaf Tobacco and into the vast coffers of tobacco kingpin Simon Rudland. But he can't just keep all those millions under his mattress. For the next step, he needs help from his business partner, 
a man known on the streets of Joburg as Mo Dollars. The name might be made up, but his reputation is real. He's one of South Africa's most notorious money launderers. I mean, he's sort of a legendary figure. <laughs> Paul Holden is a director at Shadow World Investigation and provided evidence to a commission that examined the theft of public money in South Africa. He's sort of spoken about in these sort of hushed tones that everybody wants to find, wants to locate, wants to discuss, wants to catch, wants to prosecute, or wants to use. Mo Dollar's real name is Mohammed Khan. And the man is a bit of a contradiction. At once a singular figure, but also a tired cliche. He's a totally self-made man with a brain for finance, but he's also your typical fast cars, fast women, hungry for power gangster type. Mo Dollars, I think he's happy with that name. I think that name makes him feel like he's a man. <laughs> That's Mo Dollars' equally flashy now ex-wife, Warda. He does money laundering like big scale, big scale. And... That's a name that he's very proud of. Mo Dollars. My colleague Alexander James interviewed her a few times in Johannesburg. Wada Latif is a character larger than life. She boasts that she never wears the same outfit twice and she has a carousel of expensive designer handbags to match each outfit. We loved the gangster lifestyle. It was a mafia lifestyle. What we want, we get. If we cannot get it, we bribed it. We loved our life. They would go on business trips to Dubai and she would be turned loose in the shopping malls and would be accompanied by someone who would push a trolley behind her, filling up suitcase after suitcase with designer luxury goods. Oh, you used to give me diamonds in front of people. I get yellow diamonds, I get black diamonds. I just get whatever I want. That was my power. Warda says her husband was emotionally and physically abusive. So she has very few nice things to say about him. But we did want to know what it was like 20 years ago when they fell in love. Before this business, we had a quite a normal life. We had three kids in four years. We were good together with each other. I used to work at FNB, earn a normal salary at FNB. FNB is First National Bank, one of South Africa's largest. Back then, they were both still working for legitimate businesses. The interesting thing about Mohammed Khan is that he starts off straight. He's a compliance officer. He's a master of oaths, an oath taker. He's the sort of person that someone go in front of to sign and swear on legal documents. So he knows how the system works. And then after, I think, five, six years into our marriage, he started doing things that was questionable. 
That's when a man named Sohail Jawani took Muhammad Khan under his wing. Jawani, who died during the pandemic, was a money launderer and a big name in Johannesburg's Pakistani community. Sahil took him on and O'Dollars becomes his partner. And then O'Dollars outgrows him. I think 2013, 2014, he started working with the cigarette guys. He sees the opportunity in the illicit cigarette business. And by all accounts, he blindsided Sahil to his investment there. Here's Khan himself in an audio recording obtained by the I-Unit, admitting that his number one client was Goldleaf Tobacco. And now to be honest with you, the biggest stuff I did was Goldleaf. In an instant, Simon Rudlin changed Muhammad Khan's life. Nothing happens without Simon. Muhammad wouldn't be who he is without Simon. This man knows Muhammad Khan as well as any man alive. His name is Dawood Khan. He's Modaler's brother. He is speaking exclusively to the I unit from a safe house. So when Kaulif Tobacco was onboarded, we started doing transactions from the early $100,000 upwards. Within a period of about six months, if not even shorter, we moved to $2 million, $3 million. And there were instances where we went up to $5 million. Simon Rudland saw Muhammad Khan as a man who could solve a problem, a very big problem. Rudland was sitting on mountains of cash from his illegal cigarette business. Once again, Paul Holden, Director of Investigations at Shadow World Investigations. South Africa has quite a problematic history when it comes to the tobacco trade in general terms. Um, I mean, tobacco trade is just absolutely riven with, you know, allegations of smuggling, of misinvoicing, of uh, just involvement in, you know, in huge amounts of, of criminality. Rudlin knew Mo Dollars was the man for the job. He was always cheaper than the bank. You use the bank, but his rate is cheaper than the bank. They move billion rands a month. A billion rand is about 60 million U.S. dollars. That's huge money for a kid who grew up with nothing. We came from a very tough upbringing. It was just a survival game for Mohammed, myself, and my mom. Daoud saw the effects the money had on his brother. At first, he seemed to enjoy it. His passion became fast cars, luxury brands, and traveling, showing his wealth. But before long, the Muhammad his family knew was gone. In his place, there was a brooding, violent man prone to mood swings and paranoia. It became worse and worse year after year. The more money he got, the worse he became. Muhammad needed to show what he had and what he could do, and he needed power. That was the most important thing. Muhammad became very controlling on everyone. So his family, wife, kids, my mom. The richer he became, the fewer people Mo Dollars thought he could trust. Eventually, he enlists his wife into the money laundering operation. 
that is how I became part of this because he couldn't trust anybody. So I used to go and pick the money up. We drove around with Warda. She showed us her old haunts, mostly around the Rosebank and Santon neighborhoods. She wanted us to see where she collected the money. Wherever you're to your right, where there's space. To the outside world, she looked like a normal mom running an errand. A few times I picked up here, the kids was with me. They will come, open the back door. One of the kids will move money. I picked up between 800,000 and 1.2 million a day. That's right. Uh, that is, yeah. From, yeah, rent. That is five times a week. Years later, she can hardly believe it really happened. The fear is still just beneath the surface. In the car, waiting, heart pumping, adrenaline is going, because kids are with me. You have this fear, this anxiety. You actually get used to that feeling, that fear, that something happens, they're going to kill me. There's no two ways about it. My life was in danger. My children's lives were in danger. Whoever was with me, life was in danger. Hello, I'm Charles Dance, your narrator for Hindsight, an original podcast by Al Jazeera. We carry on exploring the lives of history's most notable figures, from Rosa Parks to Pol Pot. We meet the people who changed the way we think about our world, and those who left it marked by their infamy. Hindsight from Al Jazeera, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we now know how that 20 rand from my pack of cigarettes went first to Goldleaf Tobacco, then literally to Mo Dollars' house, often in the back of a luxury SUV, driven by his wife, sometimes with their kids right there in the car. But that's the easy part. The hardest part of any money laundering scheme is getting the dirty cash into the financial system. This is where Mo Dollars really earns his stripes. His job as a money launderer is to move this cash through multiple levels, multiple accounts, businesses, until it is indistinguishable from clean money. And for this leg of the story, we're getting a first-hand account from a man on the inside a man who used to work for Mohammed Khan, who we're calling Jimmy. Mohammed Khan, had a, he told us that he's doing work for the tobacco people in Zimbabwe. And uh, I believe that guy's name is Simon. His pickups of the tobacco could be a million in profit a day. Jimmy describes the operation in detail. It involves setting up thousands of what they called ghost companies. Mohammed Khan is a person that's will never use his name. 
he will always use somebody else's name to go and do the dirty work for him. So Jimmy had a front row seat to the illicit activity that Mo Dollars was involved in. He was there when Mo Dollars would go and collect IDs and documents from people on the street and open companies in their name. We used to go out to the people that are suffering in the night. All you have to do is come with me, we're going to open up a company and we will pay for the company, registration, everything. Right, so that's classic money laundering. Retired FBI agent Karen Greenaway. Those small companies would be Smurfs. So in other words, a Smurf is a person, not the little blue characters from cartoons years ago. So that's what you have here, right? You have small companies who send their money to this big company. This would create a kind of an entry level for that cash. And the cash would eventually move through several of these companies. Mo Dollars keeps the accounts small enough to avoid detection. That's his way of sidestepping the banking regulators. But we've discovered that he was up to something even more audacious. Yes, I spent somewhere. During her money launderer's tour of Joburg, Warda Latif takes us past Sasfin Bank, which is a niche business bank. Yes, I spent. I used to come here at the back, at the back, not in front, at the back. Because uh, he knew the people, he made friends with him uh, to move money. You see, Mo Dollars wasn't just friends with people at Sasfin. He was kind of running the place, at least according to his brother Daoud. So we were actually the executive management team of the Sasfin Forex processing department. Mohammed was CEO of that company, without them knowing. This is the whole ballgame right here. A money launderer is constantly searching for weak spots in the financial system. They remind me of the raptors from Jurassic Park. But they never attacked the same place twice. They were testing the fences for weaknesses systematically. They remember. Sasfin is the weak spot in the fence. And once it opened, the money started flowing relentlessly. Co-Leaf Tobacco had the capability within Sasfin to move massive amounts of money. Not questioned because we had the respective eyes in the bank overlooking the entire process. After a while, it all became routine. Ward Latif would play hostess while Mo Dollars met with Sasfin staff. There was a couple of guys that used to come home and have lunch with us. Friday afternoons, after lunch, they get their money. So life was good with Sasfin. He controlled the bank. He controlled it. Here's Jimmy, who used to work for Mo Dollars. We used to meet up with the bank guys at night. The money was there all the time. Everybody's been paid. Mo Dollars had a keen sense of what people needed and how to keep them happy. Mohammed would then meet with individuals, see what type of character you are, what's your needs. He's got a family, wife, kids. That's not enough money for him to enjoy life. And also he used to give them holidays overseas and he used to renovate their houses for them. So let's tell him, you look after us, you push through all our payments, no questions asked, and we'll match your salary every month in cash. 
According to Dawood, there was one man inside the bank that Mo Dollars trusted above all the others. To demonstrate, he showed us an email from Mo. Here's a payment that uh, Mohammed's sending through to me, and he's asking me to send it to H only when he's in. H refers to Hussein Shunara, who oversaw Sasfin's foreign currency payments. He would basically ensure that his staff is pushing through this unquestioned. Mohammed and Hussein had a magnificent relationship. Chunara would monitor how much of the fake invoices had been paid off. The totals are reported to Mo Dollars as balances. So he was like the most valuable tool or component, if I can put it that way, in Sassman to ensure the success of the money being laundered. It got to the point where Chunara was actually running personnel decisions through Mo Dollars. Here's Dawood with another email. He's asking for permission from Mohammed. Here's someone that we can easily rope in under our payroll, and we can ensure that we can utilize him for the services. The problem was, the candidate was so unqualified in the basics of banking that Sasfin's CEO flagged it in a subsequent email, which Dawood reads to us. No experience on SWIFT, no experience on AML, anti-money laundering. Frankly, no experience of foreign exchange at all. In the end, it wasn't that big of a problem. The candidate got the job anyway. Once Mo Dollars made it through the fence at Sasfin Bank, he just keeps pushing, getting embedded deeper and deeper. But after a while, it's not enough to just keep pushing through payments. He has to find a way to cover his tracks, too. So, he enlists the services of an IT technician at the bank called Lulama Kene. Dawood says it was his job to remove the fraudulent transactions from the bank's digital system. Lulama was instructed you need to go onto the mainframe of Sassman's banking system and remove that entire transaction and any information related to that transaction. That means the transfers would be hidden from the Reserve Bank, which investigates banking fraud. As Mo Dollars makes more and more money, he uses that cash to pay off anyone that can hold him accountable for his actions. He bribed everybody, everybody, to the estate agent, even the lawyers, to the officials in SARS to make the thing go away. SARS is an acronym for South African Revenue Service, like the IRS in America. Everybody have a piece of the pie, everybody. I mentioned earlier that Mo Dollars was a bit of a cliché. And with that in mind, we know how these gangster stories tend to end. They get caught. And the walls are definitely closing in. Investigations are ongoing. Alexander James, there is some very damning evidence there. You have to assume investigators will be interested in all of this? I'd say what we've got is explosive and extremely useful to anybody that's looking to prosecute a case. With Mo Dollars, we've got the complete package of evidence. We've got the first-hand testimony from people who are actually involved in his money laundering operation. But don't just take their word for it. We've got documents too that back up what they're saying. We've got invoices, we've got emails, we've got memos, we've got screenshots of WhatsApp messages. We've got the complete picture of the money laundering that Mo Dollars was facilitating. 
Eventually, the lifestyle, the power, and the ego became too much for Warda. The man she met all those years ago, she says he no longer exists. His personality started to change and his lifestyle changed. He was very aggressive. Then eventually I realized that this aggressiveness, it's all part of the money. It came with the territory. When I left him, there was 15 million rand cash in the house. Do you know how 15 million looks in suitcases? You don't want to know. How did you feel, though, that you were essentially an accomplice to this criminal activity? Yeah, that's the reason why I left. It was just not right. I thought to myself, either I'm going to stay with this man and die, or get away from him and love. The relationship with his brother, Daoud, followed a similar pattern. Mohammed's very manipulative. He's controlled me through my entire employment under him. He's had me followed. That's what ultimately broke the brother's relationship. Daoud wanted out. How do you walk away from such serious characters that you know are now a direct threat to you in every aspect, whether it's government officials to mafias or criminal elements? The IUNIT obtained a conversation between Mo Dollars and Dawood's wife, where Mo warned that if Dawood ever cooperated with authorities, Simon Rudland and the Gold Leaf Mafia would retaliate. If Dawood turns state witness against Gold Leaf, what do you think is going to happen? Why, what do those people do? They kill you, don't they? Exactly. You're talking about the biggest cigarette manufacturer in the Southern Hemisphere. Do you think they're going to leave you alone? Sorry I'm speaking so straight, but do you think they're really going to leave you alone? Who are you to them? He will come after me. These are individuals that has the capability of governments and their security services to look for individuals, find them and take them out. We put our findings to all of those featured in this podcast. Simon Rudland told us that the allegations against him formed part of a smear campaign by an unidentified third party. He described himself as, quote, a strong businessman competing against the greedy and envious. He denied any involvement in the sale of illicit cigarettes, in gold, or other smuggling, and in sanctions busting. He accepted that he had dealings with Mohammed Khan, who we agreed appeared to be a money launderer and that Goldleaf and another of his companies had authorized Mr. Khan to act as their agent, but denied that any form of money laundering had been undertaken for him or any of his businesses. Goldleaf Tobacco said that it emphatically denied any involvement, past or present, in money laundering, the trade in illegal gold, or related matters. No untaxed or illegal cigarettes could be attributed to Goldleaf, though the proceeds of the illicit sales of its product by others did appear to have been moved between jurisdictions and thereby laundered. 
Goldleaf's limited transactions with Muhammad Khan had always been lawful and proper, though it accepted that Mr. Khan was a money launderer. Muhammad Khan told us that all allegations against him were false and were based on speculation, conjecture, and manufactured and doctored evidence. He confirmed that Goldleaf Tobacco had been a client of his, but he denied involvement in money laundering or criminal activity. He denied bribing anyone who worked in the South African banking sector. Sassfin Bank told us it was taking vigorous action against suspended and former employees and clients of its foreign exchange unit and said it no longer had a relationship with any of the businesses named in our program. The other parties featured did not respond to our request for comment. Next time on Al Jazeera Investigates. Whatever happened to that 20 rand I spent on cigarettes? Well, from Mo Dollars, it went to one place and one place alone. It all comes out of Dubai. It's all Dubai, Dubai, Dubai. We'll explore the cosmic connection between the gold mafia and the city of gold, Dubai. And we'll catch one of its most notorious members, Red Hand. This is an incredible piece of investigative work. This episode was written and produced by me, Kevin Hurton, with help from Amy Walters. Alexander James and Sarah Yeo are the lead investigators of this series. Craig Pennington is our sound designer. Clean Cuts does the final sound mix. Eric Semithrakis composed our snazzy new theme song. Peter Charlie is the show's executive producer. Nay Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. And Phil Reese is Al Jazeera's director of investigative journalism. We will see you next time.